Hebrews 2 leads us further in our worship this morning. When we read these words, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Brothers and sisters, this is an incredible calling for us to um, not neglect the salvation God's given us. And what does that mean? What that means is, is, is to not live in light of it, to not live in response to what God has taught us in his word. That would be to neglect the great salvation he's given to us. But if we listen to it and understand it and live it and respond to it, oh, now we are indeed fellowshipping and enjoying the Lord as he intended us to do. So this morning, we're going to have a time where we spend time fellowshipping with God um, through his word, listening, and by God's grace, hearing and responding to it. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. And as well in your bulletin, there is an outline and encourage you to locate that and take it and follow along. And you can take notes if you choose, but they're there for for your aid so that as we fellowship uh, together, um, you're able to uh, concentrate and focus where we are and hopefully respond to what you've heard. Luke chapter 24 is an account, verse um, 13 and following, is um, an account that took place on the day Jesus Christ was raised. If you have your, your, a Bible, you can see from chapter 24, 1 through 12, you read of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And on that day in which he was resurrected, this account took place um, in our uh, text. And it's an account which serves as an incredible teaching aid. Um, helping us to understand how God handles you and me when we are struggling in darkness and gloom. So would you, with me, follow along Luke 24, 13. I'll be reading 13 through 32. Um, Follow along with me. This is God's infallible world. This is the word of a king. And uh, throughout all of history, when kings spoke in assembly, You stood, you always stood. So let me invite you together with me to stand out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word this morning. Hear now the word of our king. And behold, two of them, disciples, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word and sight in the sight of God and of all people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that he had also seen that they had also seen visions of angels who and who said that that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where where they were going, Emmaus, and he acted as though he would go further. 
And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting towards evening, and the day is, is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time the privilege you've given us to fellowship now with you through your word. Give us grace, O Lord, to heed the salvation you've given us as um, described in this passage. Let it sink deep within our hearts. Holy Spirit, that's a work that only you can do. So Holy Spirit, we pray, work within us, allowing these words to become more than just words, but food to our souls. And that these words would, would penetrate deeply between Um, um, piercing as far as as joint and marrow, that we indeed would be people um, feasting and fellowshipping um, with you and upon you. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last June, an article was published by a woman named Claire um, Terrell, and it was titled, No One Suspected He Was Suffering. In essence, it detailed the difficulties that moderns face in the world in which we live. These difficulties, which at times can, can weigh upon us so heavy, so strong, that they lead us to de- um, great depression and despair. It also talked about how there, well, while all of us go through this, of course, there are some who go through it and they don't talk to anybody about it. They put on a brave face, they smile, and they, they laugh, and they make it look as though they are completely and totally happy when inside they are breaking. While this is a serious problem in the world in which we live, it's not a new problem. It's a problem that goes back thousands of years. King Solomon, 3,000 years ago, penned these words in Proverbs 14, Even in laughter, the heart may be in pain. And the end of joy may be sorrow. The passage in which we're looking this morning was, is, is, is for every one of us here this day. But more particularly for the one who in their laughter there's pain. And in their joy there's sadness. Because this is written about two men who on that first Easter were not filled with joy. Anything else but joy. They were filled with sorrow and despair and depression. So heavy and so weighty that it weighed heavy upon them as they walked. They were on the road to Emmaus. Notice or listen to verse 13. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were conversing with each other about all these things, these things being the, the death of Christ, which had taken place. So this, this verse details two men traveling on the road to Emmaus. And because it says that very day in verse 13, we know that this is taking place on the day that Jesus Christ rose, on the third day, which would be Sunday, today. And, um, but they weren't privy to the knowledge that Christ had risen. They were still living in light of the crucified Christ, in light of the, of the um, um, executed false Savior, whom they thought was a Savior, but evidently was not. So they're horribly discouraged, horribly depressed. What's this road? Well, the road to Emmaus it was a literal road. I've got a little uh, chart, a little map there. You can see the road. It's seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, as the, the text reads. It was a road upon which these two disciples walked. It was a road on which many disciples on that day would have walked, coming back from Passover. But brothers and sisters, it's more than just simply a literal road. It's, it, it is a road frequented by any and all who upon their shoulders lay a massive weight of sadness and depression. Since I studied this years ago, any time I enter into, into sorrow or de- a depression, despair, where I'm tempted to, 
I realize I have just stepped foot on the road to Emmaus. Now, God addresses this, this road. He comes to us in that time of despair, as he did here. And from this passage, we learn a lot about God's response, God's answer, God's uh, solution to every one of us walking when the time comes. And some of you, no doubt, here are walking on the road to Emmaus this morning. Others of you have just left it, and others of us are going to enter it soon. What is God's answer to this, to the pilgrim traveling this road? Well, first of all, would you notice with me the human experience? This, is, this road, this walk is common to all men, to all women, to all people. This is a common scene in our lives. Notice with me, it's characterized by three things. The first one is 15 through uh, 17. It's marked with, with deep sadness. Notice uh, 15. It came about that while they were conversing and discussing which would have been, of course, from verse 14, the resurrection or the death of Christ and the cross and what that, that meant. Um, as they were uh, 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 discussing, and began, um, Jesus himself approached. He drew near and began traveling with them. So as the disciples are walking, Jesus Christ, now resurrected, approach him from the behind. They catch up, he catches up to him and begins walking with him. Now, Jesus would have been one of many, many travelers on that road. So it would not have been anything strange for, for someone to catch up to you and sort of walk with you and f- to find out the latest news and things like that. Um, that's what happened in that day. In verse uh, 16, but their eyes were prevented or kept from recognizing him. It could have been one of two things. Either one, um, Jesus Christ's form was altered so that they would not recognize him, as in Mark chapter 16. Or it's, it could have been that their eyes were prevented from seeing uh, Jesus Christ, as in John chapter 20. Either way, they do not recognize him. Um, uh, uh, furthermore, I, again, because of so many people uh, traveling, they wouldn't expect to recognize him. So they wouldn't think that he would be there. And so they're not seeing him. They're just walking and this person simply joins them. Verse 17. And he, Jesus, said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? Now, brothers and sisters, this is a masterful question. Isaiah 9, 6, during Christmas, we, we, we quote this verse that Jesus Christ is, is a wonderful counselor. Almighty God, Right? He's a wonderful counselor. You're seeing that in action right, right before your eyes. Jesus Christ listens to them talk about the death of himself, of the death of their Savior. And after a bit, he says, what are you guys talking about? As if he'd never heard this. Notice verse 17b, and they stood still looking sad. That question made them stop in shock. How could you not know? But it's interesting, the moment that they stop, brothers and sisters, you and I don't see the sadness of one another because you and I are active. Man, we came, we came bustling into here this morning, most of us with food. We came setting things up. We weren't looking at anybody. We were focused on the task. Tomorrow you'll be focused on going to work and at work getting the job done. We're not focusing on people. But the moment these disciples stopped, their true demeanor was revealed. They were looking sad. The word for sad here is a, is a, is a strong word. Gloomy, sullen, depressed, downcast. It's the word used in Proverbs 15 for a broken spirit. These people are at the end of themselves. They are in despair. It's the moment that they stopped. Their true inside was reflected on the outside. So verse 17, um, or um, Actually, before we go on, thus, uh, from this note, brothers and sisters, sadness, discouragement, these are disciples. You're not immune to it. Being a child of God, being a Christian, being someone who follows the Bible doesn't mean your life's going to be easy and it doesn't mean your life's going to be happy. Sometimes we take a turn and that turn leads us on the road to Emmaus. Realize that. This is a human condition characterized by all people, including God's people. So the next time you go, man, I'm a Christian. I should be happy. No, you're a Christian struggling in the world in which we live. At times you're going to be sad, just like these disciples were. Notice, secondly, it's marked by disappointment. 
verse 18. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? This, is, this verges on the sarcastic, on the anger. You've got to be kidding me. You mean to tell me you have been here and you have no clue what's going on? Everybody knows what's going on. How could you be so blind, so ignorant? Sort of a gut reaction um, in their pain and sorrow to, to, to express that pain, that, that sorrow upon someone else. How dare you? Um, Christ's response, again, masterful. All it does is draw it out. And he said to them, what things? <laughs> Wonderful counselor. Incredible. Um, and they then said, and you, uh, the next verse is just a, a throwing up of emotion, of content. The things about Jesus, the Nazarene. Now mark uh, some words. Who was a prophet, mark that. Mighty indeed in word and the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be sentenced to death and crucified him. So stop right here. At this point, these disciples reveal something about their, about their view of the Messiah, the, of what happened at Calvary two days earlier, three days earlier. They revealed that to them, the one who was crucified was only a prophet. A prophet mighty indeed, but a prophet nevertheless, who was executed just like Many of the prophets in, the, in church history or uh, um, redemptive history were likewise executed. Remember Christ in Matthew 23 said, Which of the prophets didn't your fathers persecute and kill? So that's just, just another prophet that our leaders, just like in the past, have done. They did it again. They killed another prophet of God. Why? Because the prophet wasn't saying what they wanted to, to hear. And then they reveal something else. Notice the text goes on, 21. But we were hoping, had hoped, past tense. We, were, we had hoped that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So he was a prophet, but he wasn't any ordinary prophet. It was understood by these, by these two that he was the Messiah. Okay, that the, the, uh, the Messiah in Scripture was the one who would redeem Israel. But understand, in that day, in that culture, in that time... The way that people understood, Jews understood the Messiah, was that he would be a general, a military leader who would come and conquer Rome. 586, God's people used to be a nation. Their nation fell in 586. And from 586 B.C. on, the Jews were always a subjected people without a nation, without a king. So they were looking to the Messiah who would come down and, and, and conquer their enemies. Rome, Greece, Persia, depending on the era in which they lived. In this era, it was Rome. So they're saying, man, we thought he was the Messiah. But he clearly isn't because he was executed. Notice, brothers and sisters, this is great disappointment. God let them down. In essence... Man, this guy was a prophet, clearly. He's the one. And once again, he was executed. How could that happen? What is God doing? Why would he give us so much hope and then dash us and crush us? Do you uh, realize seven days before this was the triumphal entry? The triumphal entry was the time when Jesus Christ, for the first time in his earthly ministry, ag agreed with everybody that he's the Messiah. Prior to that, he was saying, I'm not the Messiah. He, he never said he wasn't. He just didn't make a big deal about it. They'd say, are you the one? And he'd say, look at my uh, uh, deeds. He wouldn't say yes. He'd say, look at my deeds. You judge. Why? Because he wasn't a military leader. That's not the Messiah from Scripture, but that's what everyone's expectation was. So if he said he was the, the Messiah, they would have forced him by, they would have taken him by force and made him king. And he didn't want that. He didn't want to be an earthly king. And so these rightly are discouraged. They are incredibly disappointed. Why? Because of what God did or did not do. Brothers and sisters, this is a common road traveled by so many in God's people amongst God's people. I mean, you can think of people like Paul. God saved him, sent him to be a missionary, and then he gave him a thorn, which Paul then begged God, begged him three times, God, you called me to minister, but I can't minister because of this. 
my ministry seems to be faulting or, or, or less, than it should, less than I think it should be. God, remove it. Three times God didn't remove it. You think of people like Job. And he'd been serving God the same way for, for decades. And all of a sudden, his children are gone. His wealth is gone. His health's gone. God, what are you doing? Have you ever been on the road uh, to, a, to Emmaus? Have you ever been there? I know you have. God, what? are you doing? I think of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, man, you can imagine Lazarus being their brother, being a really close friend of Jesus. They had it, they had it in because Jesus is the military leader who's going to conquer Rome. Man, we've got it good. But instead of conquering Rome, Lazarus dies. And before he dies, Mary and Martha call for Jesus and he's delayed and doesn't come. You can imagine what God, what are you doing? Disappointment majorly. Brothers and sisters, that's the road to, uh, to Emmaus. It's characterized by deep sadness. The sadness that comes from a broken spirit, from the death of a loved one, from the death of your hope and dreams. It is characterized by grave disappointment. Lord, you let me down. And lastly, would you notice it's characterized by a confusion. 21b. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened, said, the, said these disciples. It's the third day. Now you go, well, why would they say that? Well, because in Christ's earthly ministry before he was executed, in his earthly ministry, he said this, Matthew chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show. So it says began to show, which means he showed it to him multiple times. He said this multiple times. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, brothers and sisters, he said that to them. They didn't hear it at all. And we do that all the time, don't we? I mean, in my relationships in my family, I come home thinking my wife is going to say this. And she speaks, and I assume she said that, and I respond to what I thought that she said. And we're going like this. Well, that's exactly what happened. God's people, his disciples, could not, could not fathom the idea that the Messiah would be killed, right? This military victor who would come and conquer Rome, he's not going to die. So when Jesus Christ said, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, and uh, there I'm going to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. I'll be executed, but I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. What would you have thought? You probably would not have heard it. You would have heard that and thought, well, that's a weird thing to say. Don't know what it means, but hey, Jesus... Whatever, right? So he said it. God's people didn't hear it until his execution. These disciples are trying to deal with this. He's dead. Our Messiah was executed. But there is that talk. There is that teaching. He rise on the third day. It is the third day today. But clearly nothing's happened. Um, verse 22. But also, so, um, so they're already at this point somewhat uh, confused. Also, some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now this is confusing. Brothers and sisters, first of all, if Jesus Christ had raised from the dead, who do you think he's going to go talk to? Do you think he's going to go talk to women who he really doesn't know? Or the 11 disciples who he just spent the last three years with. So you think, assumption, if he did rise, he's going to come to his disciples. He didn't. Secondly, in that culture, in Rome, Greece, Persia, ancient world, women, their place, their stage, how they were viewed, they were not qualified to be witnesses in a court of law. Okay? I'm not saying that's good, but that's what the culture was in that day. And so to have these women come and say, we are testifying that this man, has, that Jesus is not in the tomb, that would make you go, what? And that is why in Luke 24, 11, if your text is, is open, you can read it. And these words appeared that, uh, to them as nonsense. They would not believe them. Not going to believe you. Then thirdly, in response to their message, do you remember what happened? Peter took off. 
Okay, I think of a cartoon and a little smoke going behind his, his feet. He took off. He ran. John followed him. John caught up. John passed him, got to the tomb first. They ran immediately when they heard this. They, they, they thought it was silly, but they're going to go ch- uh, uh, check it out. Well, we read um, in here, verse uh, uh, 24, And some of those who were with us went uh, to the tomb, Peter, John, and found it exactly as the woman also had said. But they didn't see him. His body wasn't there. So what do you do with this? There's confusion. We don't understand what's going on. Brothers and sisters, that's the road to Emmaus. I mean, I think of people like Habakkuk, the prophet. The prophet Habakkuk lived at a time when the kingdom, the Old Testament kingdom of of Israel, was in horrible shape. They were diving into sin, compromise. So Habakkuk prayed and prayed and prayed, God, please handle your people, convict your people, bring your people back to where they need uh, to be. And God in Habakkuk comes to this prophet and says, Habakkuk, prayers answered. I'm raising up the Babylonians to discipline my people. And Habakkuk's mind was blown. What? No, Lord, no, no, no. I want you to change them from within out. Not, not have some wicked, evil people come in and hurt them. Talk about confusing. Um, you think of other examples. Moses, called by God. Moses, go deliver my people. And everything he did in Egypt, everything he did just made it harder and harder for God's people. Bricks without straw. You know, more, uh, longer hours. Everything he did, having been summoned by God to go serve God the way God wanted him to do, resulted in hardship, difficulty, and more and more grumbling and a louder grumbling amongst God's people that we are sick and tired of Moses. You can imagine how that would be. Um, Lord, I don't understand. You've called me to do this, but you're not doing it. I thought you wanted this. Brothers and sisters, that's the road uh, to Emmaus. It's characterized by deep sadness. It's characterized by profound disappointment. It's characterized by confusion, not understanding, God, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Why are you doing what you're uh, doing? That's the road to Emmaus. William Hendrickson wrote these words. You've got them in your, your notes. He, de- he described this road with these words. Their master gone, their friend, and what a friend, departed. Their plans wrecked, their hopes shattered. They are perplexed, baffled, and so they despair. That's the road to Emmaus. Have you been on that road? I think you have. I can't imagine being here today and in uh, meeting, if we were to sit down and listen to every one of you share your story, my guess is every one of you have been on that road. You may be on that road this day. You look really happy today. You're, you're here. You're where you need to be. But you're inside breaking or you're about to be on that road and you know it. That's the road to Emmaus. Though 2,000 years separate us from the crucifixion, life many times brings us to this road. So what's God's answer? What's God's a solution. Think of it, brothers and, and sisters. This whole road could have been avoided had God simply appeared to these disciples before they set out. But he didn't. Why? Well, we know Scripture says that these are recorded in Scripture so that we might be instructed and have hope. This passage is so that we would understand how to process when we're on the road to Emmaus. Notice God's solution. The first one is, it's immediately addressed by understanding the message of the word of God. Notice verse 25 and 26. And Christ said to them, O foolish man and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Brothers and sisters, I know a whole lot easier way Christ could have addressed their problem. He could have went, this, it's me. And they would have said, oh, you've resurrected. Woohoo! But they would have missed who he is. Their whole problem was, while he was living, they misunderstood what he came to do. He didn't come so that they would reign in easy thrones. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He didn't come to conquer Persia or Greece. He came to conquer Satan. To conquer what Satan has done. To conquer our sin. We'll get out of that. Um, and that's the problem here. He said to them, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to believe 
all that the prophets have spoken. What did the prophets speak, brothers and sisters? Let me ask you, or let me have you listen to, you can turn there if you'd like, Genesis chapter 3, the first, the first prophecy of Scripture. It's Genesis 3, 15. Okay, so they were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets taught about the Messiah. But what did they teach? What did they miss? What's the solution? Because Jesus, as we read here, is going to explain all that the prophets taught. So the solution when you're on the road to Emmaus is to understand, by God's grace, have eyes be open to understand what God's doing in your life, what he's doing in this world. What is God doing? Well, listen to the prophecy. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, cast out of the garden, God came and spoke to the, to the serpent, to the devil, to the woman, and to the man. And in speaking to the devil, this is what he said. And I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the woman. Between your seed, your followers, and her seed, her descendants. So this, he, he says there's going to be this clash between the followers of God and those who don't follow God. The, the followers of Christ and those who don't follow Christ. And he, Christ, shall bruise you, the devil, on the head. That's a, that's a mortal wound. You, you, you take a sword and knock someone on the head in that day. You're chopping half their head open and it's, it, they're going to die. And you, the devil, shall bruise him, Jesus, on the heel. That's a flesh wound. So get this. There's a prophecy that sometime in the future, there's going to be this clash between Satan and Jesus. And in that clash, Jesus is going to conquer, completely destroy the devil's work. And in the process, the devil is going to render to Jesus a flesh wound. We read in 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, appeared for this purpose. You know why Jesus Christ came to this earth? 1 John 3, 8, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. He came to destroy the work of Satan. Well, what's that work? Well, let me give you the backstory real quickly. Okay, when God made this world incredible, he made us in his image for a purpose so that we might have fellowship with God, that we might walk with him, that we might talk with him. God's a person. When you think of God, I'm not sure what comes to your mind. Typically, for most of us, we might think of this amorphous, non-body, spiritual thing. Brothers and sisters, God's a person. He doesn't have a body, but he's a person. So he can be talked to. He can be communicated with, just like you and I. What do you do with, with persons? Well, you talk with them. You hug them. You, you uh, dialogue. You, you help them. They help you. You know, whatever. That's what happens between persons, dialogue, communion, fellowship. God's a person, and he made man to have a relationship with him. Genesis chapter 2. Let me uh, I'll read it. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Brothers and sisters, he made man, put him in the garden, have a relationship with him, and he gave man one command. What's the command? What's the text say? Don't eat of that tree. You can eat any other thing in the tree, anything else. Don't eat that tree. It's the only uh, command. And it came with a, uh, a threat, a curse. This command came with the curse. And the curse was, if you eat it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. Okay? Well, what did Satan do? He's, of course, privy uh, to this. He approached Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent, Satan, the devil, was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. That was a lie. He didn't say you can't eat of any tree. He said you can't eat of that tree. Now the woman said to, to the serpent, from the, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. God didn't say that, but she added it. Or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall surely not die. That's nuts. God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Satan basically says this, God is an autonomous king. You eat this tree and you'll become an autonomous king like me, like him. You'll be just like God. 
So just eat it, Adam and Eve, and you'll be just like God. Right? Knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So get this, brothers and sisters. What did Satan do? He, he doesn't care about us. He wants to um, attack. He wants to offend. He wants to hurt God. So he, he comes and approaches God's trophies. We are God's trophies. We are once saved trophies of grace. Prior to, we were his trophies in the garden. He came to, to the greatest thing God made um, uh, in, um, because they're image bearers. And, he, and my goal here is to just mess with God. So he tempted God's people with this promise. If you eat, you can do whatever you want. No one tells you what to do. Religion, you don't need it. You can make your own. You don't need to listen to what anyone says. You can do what you, you can believe what you want to believe, and it'll be true. You can do whatever you want. Well, we know what they did. They actually took. And when they took, the moment they took, they died. They died mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and the process of physical death began the moment they took it, and eventually they would physically die. It would culminate in their physical death. But you know what? This is the bad news. Don't miss me on this one. Don't lose me. Everyone listen up here. The bad news is this. When, when Adam ate and he died, he not only died, but everyone represented by him, everyone born of Adam would be um, also under God's judgment. They also would die. Listen to Romans 5. Through one transgression, Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one man's disobedience, Adam's, the many were made sinners. So, so that's bad news. And that results in this horrible burden. You might say, well, wait a second. If, 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 if Adam's going to die and we die in him, that's the bad news. If, if, if you're born of Adam by normal generation, if you were born normally, then you're dead. You are, you are spiritually, you are judged before God as a, as a breaker of the promise. And therefore, you and I stand culpable of death and hell. You go, well, why can't they just say, but God's loving, right? Why can't they say, God, will you forgive me and have God forgive them? Brothers, it doesn't work that way, okay? Because while God is loving, he's also just. And because he's just, he can't just forgive you. He can't just overlook the fact that you and I are guilty of Adam's sin. He can't do that. He has, to, he has to judge us. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That is an inviolable law. It's a moral law. You guys know signed law, right? Uh, physical laws like gravity. You can't violate gravity. If you're on a skyscraper and you jump, you know, one in a billion are not going to float up. Everyone's going to fall, right? Because it's a law, the law of gravity, right? You, you can't break these laws of physics, well, brothers and sisters, this is a moral law just as inviolable. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, there must be death. If you have one sin, you must die. That's a moral law just as inviolable as the law of gravity. So, well, then, if God's loving, he just can't overlook it. No, if he does, he's not just. And thus, he's no longer God. So what did he do? What, what, how can we be saved? How can we, we um, not, be, uh, not, not be sent to hell upon our death? Well, this is, what, this is the message of Christmas. Jesus Christ, God, became man. Listen to Romans 5. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's God's love. He demonstrates his love in sending his son to die in, in the place of us. Listen to it. When Christ was born, Galatians 4 says this, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What law? The law of Adam in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Christ came, born under the same rule he gave Adam. One sin, you die. Adam sinned and all of his people died. All of those born ordinarily 
by ordinary generation, normally. Well, Jesus wasn't born normally, was he? He was born of a virgin birth. He didn't have an earthly father. Therefore, he wasn't culpable to that father's sin. Adam didn't represent him. Christ came to represent us. So he was born under the same exact law. And then we read um, Galatians 3, Christ then redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Remember what the law, what the law, it brought with it a curse. The curse is death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, death, having become a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Do you know what was going on at Calvary, why Jesus Christ was hung on a cross? He wasn't hung there because he was being executed by the leaders, the religious leaders, because they didn't like his message. He was being hung there by the predetermined plan of God. That is how a loving God demonstrated his love. And because of his love, he sent Christ himself to die under, um, as a sinner under the law. Now, he didn't sin. He lived a perfect life, but he died in the place of the sinner. He bore the curse of the law for us. That's what, the res- that's what the cross is all about. That's what these guys on the road to Emmaus didn't get. They thought he was a military leader. He was a spiritual military. He came not to conquer Rome, Greece. He came to, to conquer the works of the devil, which were set into motion when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they rebelled against God. God came to fix that through, through the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, who he, sinned, he didn't sin at all. He then died in our place, and in dying in our place, in our place, he took our death, we get his life. That's what Easter is all about. And that, brothers and sisters, no doubt was the message and more which Jesus proclaimed to the disciples in our text. Notice with me, verse 27. And in the beginning, and beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, everything in the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the solution was not to um, say, don't cry. I'm the Messiah. See, open your eyes. I rose. No, it was to help them understand who he is, to understand the message of this book. The message of this book is a very simple one. Where we are sinful, God came, died in our place for, our, for the, the curse of the law, rose, and in rising, raised us up with him. That in him we live. In him we are forgiven. Um, in him. We tend to think because God's loving, all I need to do is do a lot of good things and God will say, you know what? You're not such a bad guy, a bad gal. You, you, you know, you got some, some, some sin, but you're a great person. I'll forgive you. God can't do that any more than your uncle who's a judge, who's a loving, wonderful uncle. I'm uh, pretending here. You have this wonderful judge, uncle. He's a judge. Imagine him letting someone go who's committed 70,000 violations of the law. You'd say that's not a just judge. That would be an awful judge. Well, brothers and sisters, if you and I just sin three times a day, just three, on average, you'd be sinning a thousand times a year. And if you lived 70 years, you'd have 70,000 sins. You think God's just going to say, oh, You've done a lot of good things. I'll let you go. We wouldn't expect that from an earthly judge. We would not expect that from God Almighty. So brothers and sisters, instead of just overlooking, he solved the problem. He took our justice, our judgment upon himself. My death is on Christ. His life is now mine. That's exactly what he taught these disciples. Incredible. So God's uh, solution for all those traveling on the road to Emmaus, is the knowledge that the greatest burden they could ever bear has been borne by Christ. Do you understand that? That's the solution. The greatest burden ever borne has been borne by Christ. Let me put it to you this way. If you took all the burdens you've ever had in all your life, every time you're on the road to Emmaus, and you pile them up all at one time and bore them on your back, that would be lighter than the burden and obligation we have to God's holiness, standing where we are called, standing uh, before him to render him a life of perfect service. A.W. Tozer referenced this when he wrote of all those traveling on the road to Emmaus. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. 
for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey him perfectly, and to worship him acceptably. And when the the man's laboring conscience tells him that he has not done these things, that, that he has done none of these things, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in uh, the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may, be, be, may become too heavy to bear. The gospel can lift this destroying burden from uh, the mind. The point's this. On the road to Emmaus, when you and I are there and we're confused and we're sad and we're disappointed with God, always that is because we don't have the big picture the big picture is god does love you he hasn't let you go he hasn't uh tricked you he's in the the process of molding you and shaping you and redeeming you so that you and i might live with him in eternity that knowledge is what lifted the these uh, disciples but it's not just that would you notice lastly 28 it wasn't just the the knowledge of what the bible uh, taught about christ it's also christ himself Uh, 28 uh, uh, quickly they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he would go further that doesn't mean he play acted he was having the motions like we'll see ya and they said no stay stay with us it's getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over and he went in to stay uh, uh, with them traveling At first, he was a burden. Now, they don't want him uh, to leave. 30. And it came about when he had reclined at the table, he took the bread, blessed it, breaking it, he began to give it to them. Was it this gesture where he grabbed the the bread, handed it to them, and they saw the the nail prints? Who knows? But at that moment, they recognized all along Christ had been with them. Christ hadn't abandoned them. He had been there all along. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Brothers and sisters, the fact that he physically vanished does not mean that he, that he left them. He is, he is present spiritually in every one of our, our lives in him. And so um, he might have left them uh, uh, physically. He did not uh, spiritually. And they said to, uh, to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while, we, while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Wow. So the, the second thing you need to realize, God's uh, solution, not only is it to understand what he's done in Christ at the cross for you and me, reconciling us unto him, forgiving our sin, but secondly, it's to realize that Christ is with us always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, uh, 20. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to close with this quick story. What does this mean in your life? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are three Old Testament characters, young men, boys, older boys, young men, who were living in Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar had this great idea to build a 90-foot image of himself, nine foot thick, and have everybody bow down and worship him. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being followers of uh, of God, Jewish uh, boys, Jewish young men, said, we're not going to do it. So they were brought before the king upon the sentence of being burned alive. And the king examined them and tried to convince them. And they said, nope, nope, not going to do it. And that enraged the king. We read about it. The Nebuchadnezzar filled with, with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it normally would be heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. And we know the rest of the story. They did cast them in, and those men who cast them in were so hot they themselves died. But while those three were thrown in there, Nebuchadnezzar did not see them ignite. Instead, they they were cast in, they got up, and they began walking around, though they were, were bound. They began walking around. And the, and the king was shocked, we read. Then the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see a four 
I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Brothers and sisters, at that point, Nebuchadnezzar said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, come forth. And they came out of the fire. Not a hair was singed on their head. Their clothing was still on them. Obviously, a miracle. But the reason I'm quoting these two, and I do this in closing, is because, guess what? Four were in the, the fire. One was, was Jesus Christ. Three left the fire. Jesus Christ never left it. The point I want you to see is, brothers and sisters, from, from this Luke uh, 24, or whether it be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Christ saying, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When you are in, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus Christ walks with you. So open your eyes by faith and behold him. But if you can't, trust he is with you. He has not forsaken you. God has not forgotten about you. He's with you always, even to the end of the age. And he's borne your sin and your guilt. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. Let us be glad. That is the story, the message of the resurrection. That's the message of Easter. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this, your passage, this, this your word given to two men walking a road that is so common to every one of us in this room, filled with sadness, disappointment, confusion, leading them to despair of even life. And yet, Lord, you came, you, you drew near and you opened their eyes to behold the glorious message of this book. God, I pray you'd give us the grace this day that you would unveil our eyes that you take whatever is blocking us from seeing and that we would see more clearly than ever before the glory of the uh, um, work and the person of Jesus Christ, how you came to die in our stead, Jesus, and how in dying you forgave our sin and how in rising you brought us in, uh, alive with you. God, give us the grace to see it. Open our eyes. Lord, likewise, give us the grace to believe when we cannot see, when the eye cannot see, but nevertheless to trust the eye of faith that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, but you're always with us in and through all things. Lord, thank you for this wonderful account which was given to teach us, your people, the glory of the salvation we have in you. Bless us, O Lord, we we pray that we might serve and love you in light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. The time that we have left, we're going to go to the table of the Lord.